Good morning. My name is Kelly Tarasovich. Today I'm going to be reading from Judges 4, verses 1 through 23. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazar, the Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Sisera, who had 900 chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. One day she sent for Barak, the son of Abinoam, who lived in Kedesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor, and I will call out Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors, to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. Very well, she replied, I will go with you, but you will receive no honor for this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. At Kedesh, Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with him. Deborah also went with him. Now Heber the Kenite a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, had moved away from the other members of his tribe and pitched his tent in the oak of Zenanim near Kedesh. When Sisera was told Barak the son of Abinoam had gone up, gone up to the Mount Tabor, he called for all of his 900 chariots and all of his warriors, and they marched from Herosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. When Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leapt down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy army all the way to Herosheth Hagoyim, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left. Meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because Heber's family was on friendly terms with the king Jabin of Hazor. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come into my tent, sir. Come in. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. Please give me some water, he said. I'm thirsty. So she gave him milk and a leather bag and covered him again. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anyone comes and asks you, if anyone is there, say no. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand. Then she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, and so he died. When Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him. She said, come, and I will show you the man you're looking for. So he followed her into the tent and found Sisera lying there dead with the tent peg through his temple. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. 
Good morning. We're glad you could join us. My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing our sermon series in Book of Judges. And today we read chapter 4, but we also spend a little time uh, briefly on chapter 5 because chapter 4 is more of a, a historical account of what happened. Chapter 5 is more of a poetic way of, to describe what has happened. It is a tale, a story of two women God uses to deliver his people. Oftentimes there's a phrase that says Christianity is all about patriarchy. It is designed to keep women down, especially in the Old Testament. Christianity is all about patriarchy. It is designed to keep women down, especially in the Old Testament. When statements like this are read, or similar sentiments are shared, what questions or thoughts come to your mind as you think about it? Well, in some ways you may think, why does church put down women so much and elevate men only? Well, culturally we're in a different era now, right? So the Old Testament way of doing things, do they really apply to us today? What do I tell my daughters? What do I tell my sisters? My mothers, what is the hope or the dream the Bible teaches about women for women? Aren't those questions that we often think about coming to church? There's a lot to unpack here, obviously, when we make statements like that. And at Christ Central Church, we are wrestling in it, um, including we try to study through First Timothy to see what God has to say about those things. We have a gender committee report that we all want you to go back to read it again and again as we have tried to uh, wrestle in this in the past. So I believe the scripture like today is very vital for us to study, vital for us to delve into, to learn, to sit under on the authority of God as God speaks to us. Now, it is only one passage today, so it's not a comprehensive picture that spans throughout the entire scripture today, but it does show us and reflect God's heart for God's people, especially for women during the time of Judges, but it also has implications for us today. Last week, we saw God working through most unlikely judge, left-hand-using judge named Ehud. And this week, we find yet another pair of unlikely saviors, one a judge, a woman, only one mentioned in the book of Judges, and the other a homemaker, but a hero who gets the glory of getting the last praise of defeating Israel's enemy and delivering Israel out of oppression. And what we see is God will use women not only to rescue his people, but also call his people into seeing who God is and how God works through the lives of these two women to point us to the greater Savior, Christ himself. And that's what we find in these chapters, in the tale of two women. So let's dive in, shall we? The first woman that we meet in this story is an active servant named Deborah. Active servant named Deborah. In light of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, a book that I picked up uh, is titled, We Are Here written by Asian-American woman writer Naomi Hirahara. And this book highlights 
30 of the inspiring Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders who have shaped the United States history. And one line of this book really captures the heart of this book, and I love what this book says. It says, we are here because you were there. Talking about those who went before us to shape. That sentence has become the shorthand for a number of experiences, sojourns, migrations, and movements. It can be certainly but used to trace the long arc, long arc of Asian American and Pacific Islander stories this book shapes for us. Naomi aims to tell the readers of this book that we, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, have been there, have been here all along. We have been actively shaping and making it work. You just have not noticed it. The author of Judges tells us of a similar sentiment for Deborah here. The author tells us that she was here. She has been there even before this whole ordeal about God's deliverance takes place. Because when we meet Deborah in this beginning of Judges chapter 4, we are introduced to her as follows in verse 1. It says, Deborah, the, uh, not verse 1, but um, verse 4, it says, Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, a prophet, was a prophet who was judging Israel at the time. It's a small detail, but I don't want you to miss that. Because the writer is very clear that even before the events takes place in chapter 4, before this great battle takes place, great deliverance takes place, Deborah was already a prophet who was judging the Israel at the time. Because oftentimes when this text is taught, and I was taught like this growing up too, and they told me, and often taught, you were, perhaps you were taught like this too, they say, Deborah becomes a judge and does all these great things. Why? Because Barak doesn't want to do anything about it. Almost making it sound like, well, God didn't have a choice but to use Deborah because Barak didn't do his job. But that's not what this text is telling us, right? This text is telling us Deborah was rightfully judging already. He was a rightful judge. There's not a second-class citizen here. She's not a second choice. She was already used by God to do God's work. And that's what text is highlighting for us. She is God's number one choice. God does not use Deborah because there's no men to do God's job. She was already actively serving God, God's chosen instrument, before this event takes place. One more point to support this is Hebrew grammar that highlights this point again. I love the New Living Translation's word here because it captures that heart. The word judging is used here in its original language, in its grammatical context. It is correctly captures uh, what that is. It's a participle form, meaning she was judging. She was judging in the past. She was judging now. She is judging now, and she will continue to be judging as a judge, meaning settling disputes guiding and leading, leading Israelites, thus highlighting once again Deborah's active role of being God's judge. Church, you know what that shows us? What this shows us is that God has gifted women with all the spiritual gifts and calls them into God's ministry just as any other men written in the Scripture. God has gifted women with all the spiritual gifts and calls them into God's ministry. In the eyes of God, men and women are created equal and all are made in the image of God. Therefore, God will gift each and every single one of us 
men and women alike with his gifts to carry out God's plan of redemption in this world. And that's what we believe in Christ Central Church. That's what we believe. Sisters, you are beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. You could clap to that because that's true, right? You are, and you have every right, every giftedness and privileges that any men in this room have. Let me repeat that one more time because oftentimes we forget that. Sisters, you are beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And you have the every right, every giftedness, every privilege that any men in this room have. Yeah, you can clap to that, church. You should clap to that because that's what we believe in. And it's not because I'm just telling you this as a pastor of a church. The Old Testament shows us that, doesn't it? We see queens who lead the nations. We see prophets who bring and teach God's word. Do you know chapter 5 is written by Deborah, the poem? If you have a problem with woman teaching, well, the scriptures teaching you, right? Talk about word of God written by women here. We also see matriarchs who lead God's people. We see women of God speaking to God directly and whom God speaks back directly to them, also known as Hannah, Samuel's mother. So don't let anyone tell you that God, Yahweh, God who created women and men, God, don't let anyone tell you that God made women into a second-class citizen. Church, that's simply not true and absolutely unbiblical. Church, the scripture reminds us that women are made with full gifts. Sisters, you are made beautifully with all the gifts and talents. You have the call of the Lord. You should dream dreams to aspire to be faithful workers of God, to be the leaders, the CEOs, entrepreneurs, engineers, doctors, teachers, artists, writers, yes, also homemakers, mothers, all that more. You are called to dream all those dreams as the Bible calls us to do so. But we do have to also look at Deborah's role in this story as well because Deborah in this story also judges a little bit differently than other judges that we saw before in this text. Because we saw Othniel, Ehud, and Shemgar often judging as a military generals here. But Deborah is shown to us as a prophet, a shrewd and authoritative voice that guides Israel by her wisdom and character as well. And we see that in how Deborah calls up Barak. In verse 6, one day she sent for Barak, the son of Abinoam, who lived in Kedesh, the, the land of Naphtali, and she said to him, this is what the Lord, God of Israel, commands you. Call out uh, 10,000 warriors from the tribe of Naphtali and Jebelin and Mount Tabor. And I'll call out Sisera, commander of Javan, the army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. What we see is not that Deborah cannot do what Barak is doing. Rather, Deborah is telling Barak to do your role. Right? Do your job is basically what he's saying. It is not Barak who is not man enough to go on his own when he says in verse 8, Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. A lot of commentators, some commentators would say, well, look at him. He doesn't have faith, so he doesn't want to go. So he says, Deborah, come with me. But I, I believe more correct reading is not Barak who is not man enough to do this, but rather Barak's acknowledgement this is an authority, authority figure, is someone that God is with. So here, rather, I believe it's highlighting Barak's acknowledgement of Deborah's authority and place. 
So what does this show us, this interaction show us about Deborah, God's judge? We see that she's called by him, God of the universe, but she's also willing to submit to the role that God has called her to be. Now, let me just to clarify, we can't parse out entire biblical theology on this, but I want you to know that Old Testament does tell us that women are equal in value, dignity, ability, created as, as we are in the image of God, given dominion over all things under God, over his creation. But we also see both from Deborah's example that women were to use their gift in any role, but there's one role the scripture sets aside for men, and that is the role of a priest. We see men and women are equal, but not equivalent in the roles that God gives them. And in the New Testament, the pattern continues. The words of Pastor Tim Keller, only one role in the New Testament is given to men only, and that is in the office of elder in the church. Now, we must not forget this truth. Um, It's not saying that women are less valuable than men because this role is given. Again, borrowing Keller's words, if our values are as human lies in being made in the image of God, not in what we do, otherwise a president will be intrinsically more valuable than someone who is unemployed, and we don't believe that. It's not about what we do that we value who we are. It's who we are made in that uh, gives us value. So when we look at the Scripture's teaching in 1 Timothy In the New Testament, all things are given, but one role, a role of an elder, as we see, are given to men to govern. As we parsed out when we study 1 Timothy together, that responsibility, the role, does fall on the shoulders of men, as we see here. Now, dear church, that's that's not an easy thing to teach. It's not an easy thing to wrestle with. And we have tried to wrestle with that in 1 Timothy all the more. So I want you to know there's grace in this wrestling process. And I also ask for grace also as we wrestle in that notion together. And as a church of Christ, we'll continue to wrestle um, in what that means. What does that look like? What does that really mean for us to live it out? And we also recently did a study with the gender committee that looked at what that looks like for us, not only as we look in the scriptures, as we survey the scriptures to see what is God's calling for us in terms of men and women made in the image of God, but differing roles that God has given us, but also what does that look like practically? How can we really learn to honor and to love one another well as the scripture teaches us to do so? So I do want to quote again our committee's work in this that captures our heart as we move forward with this something that I must remember constantly, and I want you to remember this constantly as we continue to wrestle with this topic together so that I turn to the wise words of our committee members. Committee members Pam Canty, Aaron Nasmith, Kelsey Park, and Dave Grigg. And this is what they wrote. They said, as a consequence, it is essential that the session, the elders and the other male leaders recognize that this is heartfelt issue of trust and vulnerability of Christ Central's church's women leaders and other female members. The session and the other male leaders must approach this woman's role in related issues with humility and sensitivity. Moreover, those men must exercise their authority and responsibility in the church in a manner that consistently shows an awareness and appreciation of the trust being placed in them. Accordingly, it is imperative 
that not only current ordained leaders, but also men who aspire to ordained leadership, and I want to include all our children as well in there, must value and seek input from their sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Do you really believe what we just read, that we must value and seek out input from our sisters in Christ? Church, that is our call. It is our call to embrace what it means to do this together, just as Barak obeyed the words of Deborah in humility, sought out her presence as he went to battle, Church of Christ, Christ Central, will you obey in humility and sensitivity, teach, guide, and ultimately model this for one another. Amen? Amen? The story of Deborah shows us that God uses his active servants for God's plan. God uses his servants that are already serving for God's plan, but he also uses the available servants, available servants uh, to bring about God's plan of redemption. And that's the second woman that we meet in this story, um, second available servant, JL, we meet in this story. Yuri Kochiyama is perhaps most well-known as a woman cradling Malcolm X's body as he was assassinated. Yuri Kochiyama is an Asian-American woman, a giant of a civil rights activist on her own, as she tirelessly advocated for the rights of the underprivileged and oppressed people. In the 1980s, she worked in the redress and reparation movement for Japanese-Americans along her husband, Bill. She supported the political prisoners who were African-Americans, Puerto Ricans, Native Americans, Asian-Americans, progressive whites, was consistent and the threat in her work as well. But do you know that this giant woman, civil rights activist, didn't always start out like that? Although she was impacted by Japanese Internment Act of 1942, she did not become an activist until the 1960s, when she was a middle-aged homemaker with six children. Her husband's salary was limited, so the family moved to a housing project in um, Harlem. Surrounded by black neighbors, she became involved in struggle to improve schools and to end job discrimination. She saw the need. She was available. Thus began her journey by simply joining Harlem Parent Committee, and, her, and she participated in a nonviolent street protest led by Congress of Racial Equality. This journey ended in her being honored as one of the leading Asian-American activists of our day. After she passed away in June 2014, a special acknowledgement from the White House quoted Yuri Kochiyama's 2002 speech from the steps of San Francisco's federal building when she said, an injury or injustice to one is an injury and injustice to all. To one, to all. You see, she was available as a middle-aged homemaker, and she became an activist that left legacy. The second woman in the story that we read today is also highlighted by the availability of being present. We meet another homemaker that God uses to bring about God's plan of rescue of Israel. And it is set up, church, with this strange pause in the story between God's call to go fight against this crazy, fierce army, and as we're getting ready for that battle, 
this one tiny detail comes in verse 11, doesn't it? It says, now, all of a sudden they're like, okay, let's go to war. Well, now, Heber the Canaanite, descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, have moved away from the other members of his tribe and pitched his tent by the oak of Janaim near Kadesh. And we're like, why? All of a sudden, this tiny detail comes out where they say, well, we've got to set up tent in the middle of nowhere. And then the story goes back to the battle. And we see God working these minor details to bring this about. And God brings about God's plan of redemption using Deborah and Barak and destroys the army by grounding the chariots of iron. Chariots of iron were basically a little version of the tanks at a time. God grounds them at the riverside, and Israelites were basically foot soldiers, right? They're able to overcome this enemy by God's might. God delivers them again by creating confusion and grounding these tanks to the ground. And verse 14 says, Then Deborah said to Barak, Get ready, this is the day that the Lord will give you victory of Sisera, and for the Lord is marching ahead of you. To remind Barak again, it's not by your might, but God is going to do it. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into the battle. When Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leaped down from his chariot, escaped on foot. He ran away from his, his army. Then Barak chased the chariot's enemy all the way to Herosheth, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left alive. And you see Sisera now, an enemy commander, leaving his army to flee for his life. And he comes to this family that we met in verse 11. There's a reason why there were tents out in the middle of nowhere. In verse 17, we find this. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tents of Jael, the wife of Hever, the Kenite, because Hever's family was a friendly terms with the king Jabin of Hezer. Jael went to meet Sisera and said to him, Come into my tent. Come in. Don't be afraid. So she went into her tent. He, so she covered him with the blanket. And with echoes of Ehud deception, Jael, having welcomed Sisera, gives him drink, lets him sleep. And this is what it says in verse 21. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and a tempeg in her hand, and she drove tempeg through his temple into the ground. And what happens when that happens, guys? And so he died. The graphic, graphic death, right? The method of her attack is also highlights who she is. You know that? Because setting up the tent and taking it down was the work of woman at the time. So it's almost like a stereotypical things that she had. The tent packs, uh, tent packs and hammer were essentially what we would liken it to women's house, household items. Such as what we would traditionally and somewhat stereotypically would say, this is what women will use at home. So we could also say Jael used frying pans to kill Sisera. Yeah. Right? He literally used whatever was available at home to kill him. And this defeat is highlighted in chapter 5, a poetic description of Jael's handiwork. In chapter 5, verse 24, 27, says, Most blessed woman is Jael, the woman of Hever the Canaanite. May she be blessed above all women who lives in tents. Sisera asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him yogurt. Then with her left hand, she reached for the tent peg, and with her right hand for the workman's hammer, she struck Sisera with hammer, crushing his head. And you're supposed to feel this. Imagine this, right? With a shattering blow, she pierced his temple. He sank, he fell, he lay still at her feet, and where he sank, there he died. 
There's rhythm to this. There's a song to be sung. This is a song to be taught, to remember that she has done this, praising her work. Again, this to fulfill the prophecy Deborah gives in verse 9 when it says, I will go with you, Barak, but you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of women. You see, in this story of Jael, the repeated theme in the book of Judges is this. God brings down oppressors, the tyrants, and seemingly powerful enemies with seemingly very weak in the eyes of society and often oppressed instruments themselves. God will use, in this case, a homemaker with ten pegs and a hammer in her hands. And what God shows us, again, throughout all this, as one theologian wrote, is what God values in this story is not Jael's ability, but her availability. It's not about what she could bring to God and all these things that she has accomplished for God to, God to use, but rather what God values most in this moment is her availability, her willingness. It's not the gifts and the talents, but her humility, her obedience to the call that God gives her to destroy the enemy of God. And in chapter 5, in the most beautiful poem, Deborah praises her, praises her by saying this in verse 24, right? Most blessed among women is Jael. Did you guys catch that? Most blessed woman, uh, most blessed among women is high praise. Do you know where you also read that? You got to go to Advent, right? Christmas time. Luke chapter 1, verse 28, angel appears to Mary and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Later on, Elizabeth gave glad cry, exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. To catch that, Mary was most blessed woman. Jael was praised as most blessed among women in Judges chapter 5. Why? Was Mary so talented at the time? Done so much? Accomplished so much? That's why she's so blessed among all? No, just like Jael, she was a virgin who had no ability to make a child happen on her own. But because of her prayer, when she said, Be unto me according to your word, this is a prayer of surrender, church. A prayer of availability. Just as Jael, with the packs in her hand, surrendered, used by God, not of her ability, but her availability to rescue Israel, this is how God works. Not by my might, not by our might, but by his might. But through God's people, not by their own, but by faith that no one can boast, not only for your own salvation, but God uses God's people to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth by your availability. And the question for us is, are you ready, church, to submit, to say, here I am, Lord, here I am, and send me, be unto me as you wish. May your will be done, not mine. I don't want my will, my presence, and my plan to work, but Lord, whatever the path that you will send me, may that be done in my life. Church, the question is, what are some areas in your life you hold on to God like this? And say, God, I want this done. I want this done not only for me, but for my son, my daughter, my family, my church. I want all this done for me. Or are you saying, here I am, Lord. I'm available. Available 
to be used, not to have more ability. When's the last time you pray for less of your ability, but more of your availability? Saying, God, I don't need all this, but I just want to be ready. Or do you pray for God, give me this and this and this and this, then I will do this and this and this. What God seeks is not your ability. God could use rocks to cry out. But God uses your availability, and you get to partake in God's grand plan of redemption. And do you know how we know that? The conclusion of this grand story of two women ends like this in verse 23. On that day, Israel didn't see Deborah and Jael. It says, on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king. Their story, church, points us to God who empowers women, who empowers God's people to rescue his people, to point us to the greatest judge of them all, Jesus who comes to rescue us out of sin, Jesus who spends time with the marginalized, Jesus who spends time with the press, Jesus who spends time with disciples who in the eyes of the world cannot save anybody, but God uses who they are to save and to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's this two women's testimony. That's our testimony. That is the call for you and I this morning. Amen? Church, I grew up with two older sisters in my life. And you know what it means to grow up with two older sisters, do you? That means you never get your way. <laughs> you always do what they want you to do out of sheer need to survive. So as the only boy in my family, often when I want to play with my sisters, I would beg them to death, saying, please, please, I have no one to play with. Please play with me. And what they would often do is dress me up, right? <laughs> it's like, and I, as a young child, I thought, wow, this is so fun. They're dressing me up. I guess what we get to play with? Uh, they're dolls. And oftentimes, we got to play with Barbies that my sisters had. Um, so I'll play with them because I just want to play with my sisters so bad. And one thing I realized about the Barbies that I play with my sisters, but they always look the same, right? Blonde hair, blue eyes. Blonde hair, blue eyes. Blonde hair, blue eyes. No matter what version clothes you put on them. In a recent news, Barbie announced that Anna Mae Wong will be made into Barbie doll, first Asian-American actress in the history, with black hair and brown eyes and darker complexion. Anna Mae Wong um, continued to audition for lead roles back in the days, but she was always cast as a supporting character or as a typical Asian character, anti-miscast uh, generational, oftentimes barred from participating in the regular scheme of things. So she often would be pushed to the side and do things that she was not comfortable with. In 1924, March, she created her own production company called Anime Wong Production so she could make her own films about her culture. 1924. However, the company closed after a business partner was caught using bad business practices. And after many years of struggle, she ended up leaving Hollywood due to constant discrimination. She moved to Europe, where she starred in a bunch of different films. But her legacy 
lives on today. I'm amazed at times when I turn on the popular media and it's people that look like me sing, receive awards. And some people may say, that's not for them. That should be for people like us. And I often wonder, who's us? Who are we? What are we made of? And I think about all the dolls that are made in the image of the people that look like me now that will inspire the next generation. The story of Anna Mae Wong that will be told throughout generation, made in the image of God. And I think about Deborah Angel, made in the image of God in this male-dominant society. But God saw them. God equipped them and used them, blessed them, and ultimately used them to deliver Israel out of the oppression. God used them for the glory of God, and their story is told throughout generations upon generations, pointing us again to God of the universe. Church, that's the story of two women in the Bible. Not great in themselves alone, but they became great and blessed because God had begun to work in their lives. God called them. God used them and ultimately used their story to point us to the greatest Savior, Christ himself. Let's pray. Church, will you pray that with me? Let's pray that prayer of surrender, will you? Saying, here I am, Lord. Here I am. Send me. And perhaps when you pray that prayer, God may send you to places where you may not think possible for you to go. Perhaps God may call you into places where you may not think to go to. But you know what God does with that as you pray that? God will also use that time to equip you, to call you, to empower you to go to those places. So can you pray that prayer with me? Here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, Lord, to send to other people here. Here I am, Lord, I surrender in my life to you. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer as we come to you in this presence, in this time, as we think about the story of judges, how you use your people. Pray that, Lord, that we will be people that not only um, count our abilities or what we don't have, rather, teach us what it means to see um, God who can use anyone, and oftentimes the most weak, most marginalized, most oppressed, to bring about your glory. Because ultimately, Lord, that is your heart, as your heart moved with those who needed the gospel the most. Give us that heart as we come to this table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.